So what are the odds that Jesus could so have arranged his life that he made it possible to fulfill all the prophecies uh, concerning him? Uh, well, there's a mathematician, and there's 60 exact prophecies, some 300 other prophecies that are uh, also attributed to his Christ, but 60 very exact prophecies. Um, and so there's a mathematician, uh, his name is Mar Martin uh, Bedinger, uh, and he was interested in that. And so he, he took that particular uh, concept and presented that to some of his math students, and they began to crunch the numbers uh, of these 60 prophecies. And they wanted to know what's the probability that a man could fulfill just nine of these from a mathematical perspective. Uh, prophecies like he's from the tribe of Judah, uh, he was born in the city of Bethlehem, the things like that. Uh, and th so this is what the mathematician found. Quote, he says, take a domed football stadium of an average size uh, and empty it of everything, the stands, the seats, the lockers, etc. Then proceed to fill all the remaining space with grains of white sand, white except for one grain you've marked with red coloring dye. All right? What would be the odds, the mathematician says, of you selecting the same grain out of that whole stadium four times in succession? <laughs> Mathematicians here? You've probably already crunched the numbers. Uh, the answer is 1 in 10 to the 76th power, or there's no way. I mean, think of that. You couldn't even do it in a room this size. Uh, pick that same grain of sand. He said that is the odds of Christ fulfilling just 9 of 60 prophecies. So if 9 of 60 prophecies is 1 in 10 to the, or to the 76th power, that's not going to ever mathematically happen, happen. Then you have 60 prophecies. So it really leads you to a logical conclusion. I always tell you I'm a Christian because I'm a thinking person. Not because I just emotionally believe in Jesus. Oh, no. I, I got to see the evidence. What's the, what's the evidence? Well, that is some pretty hardcore evidence. Um, so, so who was Jesus? You don't know? Yeah. It's like your first time in church? Yeah. Like, so, so who was Jesus? Well, he, he was the God-man in the flesh. That, that's who he was. He was the Messiah. I mean, that is who he was, and that's who he is. Um, so uh, it, it says in Isaiah 7:14 that he would be Emmanuel. Uh, God with us, uh, and indeed he was. It says in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, uh, another prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem, but it says in, in the Hebrew text, it reads that he is, his goings forth have been from long ago, and the Hebrew text is uh, the most eternal-like language you can have in Hebrew, meaning, well, he's going to be the God-man, uh, but he's going to be the eternal, eternal God that's going to become the God-man, um, and that, that's who Jesus is, and it leads to a personal question. In fact, two questions. Uh, two to a person who is not a Christian, because I used to be a non-Christian. So to a person, I wasn't born saved. <laughs> uh, ask my mother. Um, so <laughs> I was a walking illustration of this in nature. So, uh, so a personal question. So if you have evidence like that, mathematical, statistical evidence like that, why haven't you embraced Christ as Lord? That is the question. What is your reason or reasons? Uh, are those valid, tenuous reasons you want to hang on to? Um, I would say uh, today's the day that you embrace him. For a Christian, I would ask you, if you have that kind of evidence at hand, and you have, then are you sharing that evidence with people who do not know Christ? You, you have all the reasons that, to lead people to Christ uh, and the mathematical evidence to show them. And so you can talk about your transformed life and how Jesus has made you a new person, all that stuff. That's fantastic. Uh, but you have hardcore evidence to show them because there is no way these, these things happened by accident. And so when we look at the, the prophetic thread going from the Old Testament through to the New Testament, uh, you have to look at these things, these 60 exact prophecies, and ask yourself, did he fulfill all those, these things he can't control? 
And so as we've, uh, we could have a test right now, walk around with a microphone and go, hey, uh, what was the very first prophecy that Jesus uh, fulfilled? Do, do you know if you were here? Unless this is your first Sunday in this series. First one came in the book of Genesis. It wasn't chapter two, it wasn't chapter four, chapter three. Uh, so in chapter three, uh, the prophecy there uh, was that there was going to be a, a cosmic struggle between the devil and, uh, and God. Uh, and the devil would eventually, the seed was coming to redeem mankind. Uh, and uh, that seed would be the Messiah, uh, as we know now. But that cosmic struggle between good and evil, light and darkness, the devil and Jesus, uh, culminated on the cross uh, when the devil thought he eliminated the seed, and the seed just eliminated the devil. Uh, and so we, we, have, we could stop the sermon right there, and it, that'd be enough for me. about you? <laughs> me, me too. Uh, yeah, that you need, what'd you say, shout that out? Yeah, Absolutely. We have some emotionally driven, <laughs> totally sold out to Jesus people on the front row. This is spiritual people up here in the front row. I didn't, she knew this, but um, and so we had, we looked at other evidence of that uh, that the, the seed, the Messiah, would come through the line of, or come through the uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, Genesis twelve uh, one to three, Abraham, uh, he would be the progenitor of the new nation. Uh, we looked at in Genesis forty eight verses eight to twelve how the Messiah would come from the uh, of the twelve tribes of Israel. He comes specifically through the line of Judah. That would be the line of Shiloh. The word is uh, related to shalom, peace. So he, uh, he would be the one, uh, the king would come uh, and rule with a scepter over Israel. Uh, that would be the Messiah from the tribe of Judah, for, which Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. His genealogical list in Matthew 1 traces him uh, to the line of Judah. So does his genealogical list in Luke 3. Uh, so check, check, check. Yeah, Jesus checks all these things. Um, last week, we, we looked at uh, the book of Numbers chapter 24, uh, kind of a comical thing with Balaam, the the prophet, and God uses a sorcerer to advance his men. I'm not sure the devil and his minions were just fit to be tied. Uh, they're like, we can't win no matter what. Yeah, that's kind of the point. You're going to lose. Uh, and so from Matthew 20, or from Numbers 24, we saw that a, a star would rise uh, within Israel, within Judah, and that's, that star would eventually rule the nations. It hasn't happened yet, but that's, that's Jesus. And so when you look at those prophetic threads, uh, Jesus fulfills all of them to the letter, uh, things he cannot control, uh, because... Uh, God is showing you, this is my son, uh, and you need to believe in him and follow him. Today, we want to add another one to that thread. It's in the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter uh, 7. And if you're a Christian, you should know these things, how to take a non-Christian to these things and show them these evidences to lead them toward why they should believe in Christ. So we look at 2 Samuel 7. It's a, it's a passage uh, where God gives a word um, from the prophet Nathan to Daniel, or to, uh, to David, uh, and gives him a, a covenant um, and a covenant in the, in the Old Testament is called a berit in the Hebrew. It's a, it, it means to cut something. So it's like cutting a deal. Uh, but God cuts this deal, and it's on him to fulfill it. Uh, so it's not your normal kind of covenant. This is God's going to fulfill this. And so when you study this passage of the great Davidic covenant uh, in 2 Samuel 7, uh, that's the motif that you find in these verses that we're going to look at, that God promises his people a glorious future through the Messianic reign. That's what God promises you. So uh, there's a lot to look around when you look at the world about you, uh, messed up marriages, messed up school systems, messed up governments. I mean, it's just, there's a mess everywhere. Uh, and I, you know, I was talking to somebody this week and they're like, yeah, I just, I, I got to go watching the news. <laughs> yeah, uh, it does get distressing when you, when you look at it and follow the trajectory of what you see in the news. Uh, but as a Christian, I look at the news and I go, oh, Jesus is coming. <laughs> Be, because the Lord said, you know, it's, what's going to happen before his return is going gonna to be like childbirth. What woman would say that was pleasurable? <laughs> Any? They're la see, they're laughing. Just no man can understand it, right? Am I right? 
No, pain, pain. So Jesus, coming to the king in the kingdom is going to be like childbirth. The world will be like in pain, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's the birth. And that's an exciting point. If you're the dad, I was, I've been there, and you're there, and the child comes forth into the world. You are humbled. You are excited. You are crying. It's awesome. Uh, that will be the king when he shows up. So there is a glorious future coming. Now, when you look at Messianic prophecy, prophecy it's in two quadrants, basically. Uh, it, it denotes Christ coming as a uh, sin substitute. He has to first come and be our sin substitute to deal with our sin problem. That's going to be Isaiah 53, that he will die for our sins. Uh, the other motif uh, in prophetic uh, word is in, in the prophets uh, is that, he, uh, that was his, he'll be a savior, a redeemer. He will also be a king. Now, and now the, the Jewish uh, rabbis and stuff, I thought that was a one-time thing. But when you look at how God played it out, it didn't happen as we anticipated. Don't, don't you find this interesting about God? I mean, all you study and all you know, like for me, all I study and all I know, I know there's huge gaps in my understanding of things. I just don't know where the gaps are. So God is, he, he's, he loves surprises. So I'm sure he's going to blow my mind one day when he does things contrary to how, how I exactly thought they were going to be played out. But I might have a conversation with him. But like, wow, I didn't even anticipate that. But when we look at uh, like I, uh, Revelation 5.10, hear what it says. It says, thou hast made them, speaking of Christians, to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. If the plain sense make good sense, seek no other sense. Great hermeneutical tool for Bible study methods. If he says he's going to make you a priest at the moment of conversion, what are you as a Christian? I'm a priest. And then you're going to reign with him. Now, there's a, this is the tension in eschatology, uh, the study of the end times. Tension in the eschatology is there's a now and a not yet feature to it. The now is the kingdom is spiritual, right? We're part of God's kingdom and it's spiritual, but that doesn't mean the king's not coming. And the king's coming, and when he comes, he's bringing the kingdom, because he says in Re Revelation 5.10 that we will reign with him on the earth. Where's that? <laughs> right here. Right here. Yeah. I went down to the governor's ma mansion last week uh, with Liz. for The governor invited us down and his wife to spend the evening with him and some other pastors for a Christmas celebration. It was, it was a lot of fun. I've never been to Richmond. I didn't know how long it was going to take to get down there on I-95. <laughs> Satan devised that freeway. But anyway, <laughs> you know, I got down there. I'm lost. I don't know where I am. We tried to go to a security gate. It's, you know, this is not where we're supposed to be. And, and there was another couple coming out. They were lost too. And, and I asked the guys, like, uh, like, uh, like do you know? Because he's coming out on the inside of the gate where the mansion was. And I'm like, do you, do you know where we are? He goes, sir, you are in Richmond. Nice. That could be offensive, but I think that's really funny. Yeah. But... Um, so if he says you're going to reign on the earth, where are you going to reign? Are you reigning now? Well, in a spiritual sense, we reign as Christians, but we're waiting for the king to show up. And that's the Davidic covenant. Uh, and so that Davidic covenant has four components to it, as we're going to look at it. So let's structurally move through the glorious thing God has coming. So as Christians, at Christmas, we're looking to the Savior came, and now we're looking forward, he's coming back. Are you going to be with him when he shows up? So four motifs. Let's think about it. Number one, the promise that he gives David is what I would say providential. So he, he takes David from being a lowly shepherd and, you know, walking around the hillsides outside of uh, uh, Jerusalem in Bethlehem area. I've, I've been all over those hillsides with my tour groups. Uh, there is not much out there. Uh, and he, you know, beautiful hills. It's called the Shephelah. It's the rolling hills leading up to Jerusalem. Um, notice what he says in verse 8. God, through Nathan's pen, the prophets, tells David, Now therefore, thus you shall, shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts. What's God got to say? 
I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be the ruler over my people, Israel. You are not the king by your own choosing. You are not the king because you're good looking and you have great military ability. Uh Uh-uh. No, I made you the king. I made you the king. This is called the providence. Now, when it says in, in the, I don't have my clicker with me today, but when it says now, therefore, um, you can't read it in the in- English text, but it's supposed to be a verb. Is that a verb? If you think it's a verb, we're going back to school, but that's not a verb. And if you're, if you're here, this is your first Sunday, you're like, why are we talking about language? God inspired the language, did he not? So if you have issues with grammar, you better get close to God because he loves, he's the God of grammar. So when he says now, therefore, it's ve'ata in Hebrew. So what's ve'ata means? It's not a verb, meaning God's like grabbing you by the coat lapel going, whoa, listen up. I got something amazing to say. So what I did is I went throughout the Old Testament because I got nothing to do during the week. I'm just kind of chilling. And, uh, and I, wanna, I asked myself, where does ve'ata and now occur in the Old Testament? And is it significant? So I went through reading them. The very first time that and now appears, uh, and this could be a whole sermon series, uh, but I'll just limit to to a couple of them. They're kind of cool. The first time it appears is in Genesis 3.22, where the Godhead, using plural pronouns, Godhead speaking, uh, they're saying, hey, we got this tree of life. Adam in his fallen state can't eat of this tree of life. We need to put an angel there guarding the way to the tree of life with a flaming sword. And the Hebrew in, the, in that text reads, it's a whirling sword. So it wasn't like the angel held this sword. This cherubim showed up to guard the way to the tree of, uh, of life. And the sur- sword is hanging in the midair, whirling on fire. That'd keep anybody away from a tree, right? And, and, but why, why did God not want Adam to eat of the tree of life after he fell? Because if Adam ate of the tree of life in a fallen state, we'd have never been saved. You see what I mean? Anyway. Uh, second time that word occurs uh, is when God curses Cain for murdering his brother over how to approach God. That was the first murder. It was over religion. And God uh, uh, talks, he uses that in, in, in chapter 4, verse 11, where he gets the attention of Cain. So if, you're, if your mother or your father were, were Jewish and spoke Hebrew, and they ever came to you as a high school student and said, Ve'ata, oh no, something heavy duty is coming down from dad. I don't know what he said. It's foreign language, but... It's that kind of thing. When God does that, then the third time he does it, he uses it with Nimrod at the Tower of Babel. Uh, when in, in chapter 11, verse 6, when the, the Godhead speaks in plural pronouns to say, let us go down and see what man is doing. You know, Nimrod's building the ziggurat uh, up to the heavens so man can be God. And God says, oh, we need to confuse them. We'll confuse them with language. We'll take unified language and make it multiple languages. And then, then, then the stonemasons can't talk to the architects and then they really won't be able to build the ziggurat. Where do languages come from? God. Babel means confusion. Isn't it confusing when somebody's speaking another language? Do you know what I'm saying? It's unbelievable. So moving on. It's not part of my sermon. That was just extra stuff. Um, it says, uh, thus says the, the Lord, uh, uh, the Lord of hosts, uh, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, uh, that's the great eternal name of God, of hosts, Shabbat. So this is the Lord of armies. What, what armies? Angelic armies? God's armies. Uh, how many are in God's army? Military people want to know numbers. How many battalions? You know, how many companies? I mean, what's he got? Uh, well, to understand how many he's got, you have to go to uh, the book of Jude. And when you read the book of Jude, chapter one, there's only one chapter, verse 14, uh, it talks about when the Lord comes back, he comes back with, well, it reads in the Greek text, myriads and myriads of angels. 
That's a Greek version of saying, I can't count them. I cannot count them. There's too many of them. So, uh, you know, a third of the demons fell. Uh, God's got the rest of them. So I don't know what you're worried about. God's got it in control. He's providential. That's what he says. You became king because I chose you to be the king. I took you from pastoring sheep to pastoring my people. You're not here. See, I think our politicians forget this, that they're not whoever they are by their choice and by their skill and all that. God put them there. So one day they're answerable to God. This should humble all of them. So any leadership position you're put into, do not think you put yourself there. I'm not here because I put myself here. Because God put me here, and all my friends in California wanted to know, and you're going, where? I'm on a mission from God, like the Blues Brothers. Yeah. So, the, the lords of armies. Uh, in the Greek text of the Old Testament, uh, uh, the word is uh, pantokrator. Panto meaning all, and krator, kratos, which means, krateo means strength, all strength. No one in this room has all strength. Some man here might think, you do not. Uh, God has all power. So this is the Lord of hosts. What's, what's significant about that? The covenant he's going to make with David to bring David's dynasty to the earth, to bring the Messiah, he has all power to make it happen. The devil lost from the get-go, but he's so arrogant, he's still playing as if he can win. But God's like, no, I have all power. I can call all angelic hosts to me to help me pr- uh, bring my Messiah to the earth through the line of David. I have all power. So he tells David, I providentially chose you. So what does providence mean? Well, I'll just read a definition of it to you from a a journal. Providence is God's benevolent and wise superintendence of his creation. Of this superintendence, the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1647, uh, states, quote, God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and mutable counsel of his own will to the praise and glory of his wisdom, power, and justice. What's that mean? He, he's in behind everything. Everything. You can't buy a car without his providence being involved. You can't change jobs. You can't retire. Everything you do, God's like, no, I, I totally understand that. I set up things for these things to occur. He's providentially in control. So if you're a Christian, that should bring you great comfort. If you're not a Christian, that's ominous. Uh, but, but God is behind the scenes guiding world history to bring in the king of kings because he brought him the first time, he's coming the second time. Uh, people forget this. Daniel chapter two. Uh, Daniel speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king on the planet at the time. He says, uh, you, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, uh, the power, the strength, and the glory. And whenever the sons of men, wherever they dwell, or the beasts of the field are, the birds of the sky, he's given them into your hand and he's caused them, you to rule over them all. You're the head of gold in this giant image of all the final world empires before the Messiah comes. You're the head of the gold and the empires are gonna decrease until the Messiah comes. They're gonna go from the Babylonian empire and all of its glory, like gold, and they're, they're going to become brittle and fragile at the end through statist power would be the final world empire. Uh, you're the head of the final world empire system and it's gonna go downhill from here. And then he says, in Ch- but he says, you're only the king of the Babylonian empire because God put you there. See, that's what people forget in leadership positions. No, God Almighty put you there to accomplish his purposes. Are you doing what he's calling you to do? In verse 43 of the same chapter, uh, Daniel says, and in that you saw the iron mixed with the common clay down at the feet level of the image, uh, the Roman Empire, 
um, they will combine with an, another in the seed of man, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron doesn't combine with pottery. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That's not the spiritual kingdom. This is the earthly kingdom. Uh, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and it will put an end to all of these kingdoms. What kingdoms? All the kingdoms on the planet. And it says, but it will, it will, ha- it will last for how long? Forever. Forever. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and it crushed the iron, the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, all the world empires, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. Uh, so the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. He's telling this to the strongest empire on the planet to his face. Uh, you're the first king in the last few kings on the planet. And then a massive stone is going to come and strike the world empires and destroy all of them, and that stone will be the Messiah who will set up his kingdom. Do you understand that, Nebuchadnezzar? See, this is the providence of God. See, I look at this Davidic covenant that God says, I'm going to start a dynasty through David, not Saul. I'm going to remove uh, Saul because of his sin and his evil. And the people chose him anyway based on what criteria? He's handsome. And we don't want an ugly king. You know, it's like, why'd you vote for that guy? It's good looking. Okay, that's weird. Um, what about the interior part of the guy? He can't, you know, can't, he, does he need to be able to think? Not really. No, he just needs to look good, you know? And that's how they chose Saul. He's tall. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. Square jaw, awesome looking, rippling muscle, etc. David, no, not so much. But, but God looked upon the heart. Aren't you glad? God looks upon the heart. Man looks on the outside. But anyway, that's a whole other sermon. Um, but God cuts his covenant with David and says, I'm going to make the dynastic empire through you, through the tribe of Judah, through you. Now, let's look at this particular thing. So the coming of the king, is this kingdom, is it's providential. God's going to set it up. Number two, it's protective. Verse nine, he says, and I've seen, uh, and, and I have been with you, David, wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make your name great, like the names of the great men on, who are on earth. He says, I'm going to take you a little, a little shepherd boy, and I'm going to make your name be one that everyone remembers. And we're still talking about him? thousands of years after why because he was a great great king in fact he was the greatest king so if you if if this rings a bell in your head when he starts telling david i'm going to make your name great who else did he say that to well answer to the trivia question is abraham what do you tell abraham i'm going to call you from Ur the chaldees you're going to leave you're going to travel uh you're going to descend into israel and from you are going to come a, a nation even in your old age i'm going to make a nation out of you uh, and I'm going to make your name great. And we still talk about Abraham. Why? Well, because God said we would. And so he says, I'm going to make you a, a, a great king that everybody's going to remember. Philippians 2. Uh, Paul's uh, converted Jew says this when he thinks about the Messiah. He says, therefore also God has exalted, highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Yeshua, every knee should do what? Bow you only bow before a king. Uh, of those who are in heaven, this angelic realm, and, un, and on the earth and under earth, and every chunk should confess that Jesus is the Lord, he's Lord, to the glory of the Father. That's his son. And so the, the promise of the Davidic empire is providential. God's gonna make it happen. He, he brought the king the first time to be the savior. He's now bringing him the second time at the end of the tribulation to be the king of kings and rule over his empire from Jerusalem. Um, but God says, there's gonna come a day when everyone will see me. You either bow because you love me or you bow because you were defeated. 
there's going to be a ton of people in the second group. So it leads to a question, which group will you be in? I plan on being in the first one. That's the narrow way, the small group. But you come by means of faith in Christ. Number three, he says the, the promise will be precise, precise, verses 10 and 11. It says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. See, God's providence. He's providential. I'm going to plant them. Uh, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the afflicted afflict them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded the judges, uh, during the period of the judges, before the kings, to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. A house is a dynasty. So he tells David, uh, this is not going to really happen in your lifetime to this extent, but there's going to come the day that wherever I planted you as my people in the land that I promised you through Abraham, uh, there's going to come the day when all of your enemies will be at peace with you. <laughs> I've, I've, I've traveled to Israel with tour groups, I don't know, for 25 years. I can tell you, it is not peaceful. It is not peaceful. Uh, I've sat on the Golan Heights up in the Bekaa Valley on Mount Bintal looking at Damascus off in the distance. And last time I was there, I listened to two hours of rocket fire rumbling through the valley in, in, uh, in, in Damascus, outside of Damascus. And you're sitting there having a cup of uh, coffee uh, surrounded by, you know, uh, trenches and pillboxes and, and machine guns. And you're looking off at Damascus and hearing the, cannon, the, the rocket fire echoing off of, the, uh, of the, the, the walls. It's not safe. And you can see the choke point in the Bekaa Valley, the Valley of Tears, where, the, uh, where they invaded in the Six-Day War, invaded Israel from the north and drove the tanks to there. And the tanks are still burned out on the hillsides. They're there. It's not safe. But this prophecy is one day uh, the king will be on the throne and there will be peace. Hamas won't attack anymore. Hezbollah won't attack anymore. Iran won't attack anymore. Russia won't think about attacking. It will be peace. Peace. I mean, they, they have iron domes in Israel at key places. And I, I asked last time I was there, like, what are those for? Uh, that's if they find a backpack. They don't know whose it is. They grab it and they run and they throw it in there. That's a, that's a bomb container. <laughs> No peace. But when the Messiah comes, Shiloh is his name. Shalom, Prince of Peace. 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 So this prophecy has not been fulfilled to the letter yet, no matter how great uh, Israel's empire has been. So the prophecy in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18 to Abraham was that God would give him and his people land. He would plant them in the land from the Nile River on the west to the Euphrates over in Iraq. That would be their land. You have to ask a logical question. Has Israel ever controlled all of that land? Answer, no, no. Uh, then the next question is, which king in Israel, of all the kings that they had, uh, I think there were 20 in the Judean empire, of all those kings, um, which one of them controlled the most amount of land? Uh, Solomon. Solomon did. 60,000 square miles. But it's prophesied that he would control it perpetually. Did he? No. No, he didn't. But he was a precursor to the Messiah when he comes, who that will be the land of his people. And his people will be blessed because the Messiah will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And all those who are saints of all time will be there to enjoy the king and the kingdom. I ask you again, are you going to be there? Isaiah 9. Uh, Isaiah uh, prophesying uh, many years after uh, Nathan says, uh, you will multiply the nation. You will increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spo spoil. For thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor at the, as, at the battle of Midian. For every boot and every booted warrior in the battle and their cloak will be rolled with, uh, 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 up for burning and fuel for the fire. He prophesies in Daniel 9, 
that when the Messiah comes, study the passage, that he will destroy their enemies to then set up his kingdom. And then it says, the famous verse in verse 6 is, who's going to do this? For unto us a child will be born, a son will be given to us, and the government, what government? The Davidic government from the house of David will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called, who is he? A wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He's the eternal father. He is Shiloh. He's the prince of peace. Who is he? He's the Messiah. He's Yeshua. He's Jesus. He's Jesus. Who's going to accomplish that? The Lord. The promise is also powerful. Verse 12 says, when your days are complete, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your descendant after you who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom that I'm promising you. He'll build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, forever. If God says he's going to do something forever, he's going to do it forever. So we still await the, the establishment of the Davidic empire forever. His promise to David did not mean there would always be someone on the Davidic throne perpetually, because I think now uh, the ruler in Israel is Netanyahu. Uh, he's not King David's line, right? Uh, so the promise wasn't someone on the dynastic throne perpetually. Uh, the promise was the, the line, the dynasty would be perpetual and that at the right time, God would fulfill his particular promise with one who is perpetual, who could do that. The only one who could do that would be the God-man Jesus from the line of David. See, God said, my son's coming. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. The shepherds heard this from the angel. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Why is this so joyous? Well, for there is born to you in this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, um, a savior. Who is he? Uh, he's Christ. Christos. Messiah in the Hebrew. He's Christ. What, what Christ? The Lord. Not a Lord. He's a Lord. He's been born. You need to get over there and see him. The, what were they anticipating? The birth of the Messiah that would come and set up the Davidic empire and bring peace. Jeremiah 23. Many years later, uh, Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. That's Jesus. That's the Messiah. See, Israel will be saved. God will save them. And don't re believe that verse. Read Zechariah 12 and 13 where he says he will. At the end of of the tribulation, Jesus appears with the church composed of people from all ages, uh, time ages, uh, and he will save his people and erect his kingdom. You're going to be there. You're going to be there. Uh, now the kingdom is in a uh, spiritual format. It's the tension of the now and not yet. Uh, the kingdom is spiritual, uh, and we know it's spiritual because our king is in heaven. No place in the entire New Testament does it, as I've read, does it ever say that Jesus is on the throne of David right now? It doesn't say that. He's just at the right hand of the Father. Why doesn't he say he's on the throne of David? Because the throne of David is going to be in Jerusalem when he comes back. He's waiting to, to arrive. The disciples, after the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, and he's about to ascend into heaven, they ask the logical question in Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 6. You've got to love the disciples. Lord, is it this time? Is it now? You came, you died, you rose again. Awesome, we're ready for the kingdom. <laughs> what did Jesus tell them? Verse 7, he said to them, he, eh, it's above your pay grade. 
from our perspective. Uh, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs, which the, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Ooh, they just got backhanded. Verse 8, but for you, you shall receive power uh, from with, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Pentecost, uh, and you shall be my witnesses. The Greek word is martus. You'll figure from the word martyr. You will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and into the remotest part of the earth. What did he just tell him? He didn't tell him, mm, uh, yeah, hey, the kingdom is spiritual. It's not going to be physical. No, he said, it's not for you to know when I'm going to set up the physical kingdom, but until I do, I have a word for you. And it's a, it's a command in the Greek text. Your one responsibility, mine and yours, is to be his martus, his witness, even if I have to die for it, that Jesus is the Messiah, the resurrected King, and he will save sinners. That is your job. That's your job. How do I go out with that word? Well, I go out with a prophetic word to show non-Christians the evidence that points to Christ. You doing that? Lastly, the promise is punitive and pleasant, such as the nature of God. He says, I'm going to be a father to him, your son, the dynasty of David, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits Notice this, not if he commits iniquity. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and strokes uh, of the son of man. So he, he says, I'm anticipating the people in your line to sin because they're men. But when they sin, it will not abrogate the Davidic covenant. So how does Solomon do with sin? Let's put it this way. How do you do with women? <laughs> That's another question. How many wives did he have? That's a, good, that's a good answer. That's a safe answer. Too many. Now, King Solomon had loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite women, Ammonite women, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women. Now, concerning the nations, the Lord has said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you. Why? They will surely turn your heart away after their gods. You marry somebody from the Sidonian or Hittite, you're going to start worship. Well, I'm trying to create peace with their, with their you know, with my in-laws. You know, I'm just going to the temple for Dagon or whatever, but you know, I ain't dead. I'm not really worshiping there. Uh, he also had 700 wives and princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turns his heart away because he's only supposed to have how many wives? A couple of people got it down. Just, just one. One. He's like, well, I like her, like her, like her, like her. Like her. I mean, how would you ever have a conversation with him if you're married to him? I mean, it's unbelievable. So Solomon's sin was what? He's kind of perverted in a way. I mean, he, he's twisted. He's got issues. Did God take the kingdom away from him? Mm -mm. No. He, God said, I won't. When he sins, I'll treat him like a father. I'll discipline him. Yeah, I'll discipline him, which he did. But, but I won't forget the kingdom that's going to come through that line. Verse 15, God says through Nathan, but my loving kindness, which is the Hebrew word hesed, which means loyal love that cannot be broken. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed him from before you. And your house, your dynasty, and your kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, shall endure before me for how long? Forever. In accord, uh, forever. Your throne shall be established for how long? Forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so spoke the prophet Nathan to David. What were David's sins? Did David have sins? Oh, my Lord. Did he? Yeah, he lied. He deceived. He murdered a man. He had an affair with that man's wife. He put that man in a forward position so he'd get killed in battle. He had a boatload of sin, did he not? Did God remove the kingdom from him? No. He started the kingdom with him. What's this tell you about God? Great is his mercy to sinners. Great is his mercy to sinners. Great is his mercy to you. 
that no matter what your baggage is, he can do great things. He can do awesome things. David never asked God, let me build an empire. He said, God, just let me build a house for you. And God said, I'll do you one better. Uh, you're not going to build the house your son will, the temple. But I'm going to make you an, an empire through which the Messiah will come and bless the world. This is how God operates. He looks at your baggage and says, oh, I, I got plans for you. I got great plans for you. I would say if you don't know him, uh, his, his plan is to save you, first and foremost. When the king comes the second time, will you be with him? We rightly sing the old song, what child is this? Who's laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping. Whom angels greet and anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. What's the chorus say? This is Christ. Who is he? He's a king. He's my king. Is he your king? Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to look at an ancient prophecy unconditionally given uh, to David uh, and fulfilled in the Christ. Uh, we relish in your precision and we look forward to your arrival with great anticipation. And may those who don't know you that are not believers become believers by the evidence that you've given us. Uh, draw them to yourself so they can be saved. And may our lives be a great example of what it means to walk with you to have the joy of the Spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.